Now that doesn't seem very loud. That's weird. I don't know what's going on here, John. Yeah, it seems fine. It was. It seemed in other episodes. It seemed like it was kind of loud. Well, I think we I think we checked with the um the levels when we were like playing some clips on a previous mm-hmm. episode, and I think I lowered it some because it was like the clip. There was a clip that was really loud, and I just never I just never raised that level back up. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what's up, man? It's been a week. Two weeks? Has it been two weeks? Has think, it been two I think weeks? three, right? Yeah. Um, we're not going to do no, maybe, maybe it was two weeks. I think it was. It was the week before I went on vacation, which was last week. Yeah, and we're towards the end of this week, okay. so yeah, yeah, it's about two weeks. Well, hey, I wanted to tell you, um, you uh, you influenced a change on how I make my coffee. Did I? Well, just that you, you mentioned that you do, um, you brew at 190, mm-hmm. which to me seems quite low. But, um, and I've been experimenting with, you know, as high as like 210 mm-hmm. and as low as like 200. But I went down to 190. I, t- I did try 190. That was a little too low for me, but I'd, I've been I'd kind of settled in around, at least for this coffee I'm drinking right now, 195 is pretty good. It is, you know, when you brew low, uh, lower temperature, it, you just, you're extracting less mm-hmm. of like the, you know, like tannic and, and bitter compounds, I think. Probably, probably maybe a little bit less acid. I'm not sure. But I feel you know it leaves you with more origin flavors, more like just carameliness, like sh- you know, like mm-hmm. the natural kind of caramelized sugars that are in the beans. <clears throat> so that's kind of nice. Um, but every coffee is different, though. Yeah. So when you switch coffees, which I switch all the time because I'm a coffee whore, um, you have to you have to go through the process again. How much coffee? How hot the water? How hot the, should the water be? What should the gr- how fine do I want the grind? Yeah. Um, how long do I brew? Three minutes? Four minutes? Two minutes? You know, yeah, so all of the, that stuff has is variable. Unfortunately, yeah, and when you when you think of like the matrix of all those variables, it's it's uh, an impossible it is. combinations. You know, <laughs> it can be infinite. A, it's a lifelong <laughs> hobby. The only problem with that hobby is that you're trying to conduct these experiments when you have not woken up and had your coffee yet. Yeah, so it's it's um it's a bit difficult to be to have a very a scientific method in the morning when you're trying to make coffee. Yeah, and then if you talk about espresso, then it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much technique. Your tamping technique and mm-hmm. just yeah, I'm not ready to get into that world. Yeah. I've been in that world for a long time now. But yeah, I I do try to experiment with. I I'm not good at keeping track of what beans I've had or what the names were because I find some that I really like. But on the flip side of it, it's I'm not getting off the shelf beans. It's from a local um, supplier here. Okay. Um, so I don't expect the beans to always be the same. I expect them to vary, even within the same name brand or whatever they call that line of roast that they do. Yeah. Um, so I try not to get too into, you know, trying to pick out the same beans every time, but I just try to at least normalize my technique as much as I can. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I'm of the sort that I do the pour over. I do about a 1920 on this particular grinder. This, what is it? What is it called? A barista? It's the barista. Oh, it's the encore barata. Barata. Yeah. yeah. So that one has numbers, and I stick to the to a certain gauge on that, and it. Um, so I'll do that with a. I think I do a usually like a forty five second bloom. Okay. And then I, then I do a, three to uh, four to five minute pour. Yeah. And that's me physically standing there pouring it as slow as I can because I, I I've seen some people that really like to agitate the, the uh, the grind. Um, but I, I prefer to not agitate it as much as possible. And I don't know why, but that's just that's just what I do. Uh, but yeah, my arm gets really tired after towards the end. 
to not agitate. Because hmm, I try to keep the water at a very specific level. Yeah. So, so it's to, in my mind, I'm, I'm maintaining a pressure it's like on that ma- water. It's like making a risotto. You know what? You know what the liquid level to be. You never yeah. want the liquid level too high. Right. You, know, you want to slowly incorporate the liquid. Yeah. <laughs> so that means I'm slowly pouring and you know trying to manage the the pour so I'm not agitating the coffee too much. Yeah. I'm glad we're I'm glad we're workshopping this uh, first world problem here, John. Yeah. You, know. you asked. <laughs> well, okay. What's um what's been on your mind? Uh, Any fun stuff? Any interesting things? No, no fun stuff. What about Salesforce? Any good Salesforce stuff? I saw something interesting yesterday. Where I put this on here somewhere. Um, oh yeah, it was. Uh, I guess the PM for I guess like change data capture, maybe streaming API. I'm not sure. Platform events, I guess. Mm-hmm. Platform events, which I guess is includes CDC. Maybe I don't even know. Um, he says, and I'm 100 percent sure what he means by this. But uh, platform events users, we've heard you. Uh, we know that you need visibility into whether your publish was successful or not. We have a new pilot called Publish Callbacks. Let me know if you're interested. Hmm. So, okay, let's just quick overview of what platform events are. So, it, first of all, it's like a you know you you define like a a, a data type that that is your platform event. It's almost like a custom object, really, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and then you can instantiate an instance of this platform event custom object thingamajig. And fire it into the ether. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is, it's kind of like public. You know, you're publishing. It's a, is it is it pub sub model or is it what's the model there? I would think it's kind of pub sub. It's pub sub. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and then you know, yeah, whatever subscribers happen to be subscribing to that type of event, you know, we'll we'll get the message right. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess there's a problem that when you when you publish a, pl- a platform event. You don't know if your publish was successful, which that's this part of it. I don't understand, and I I haven't done. I really haven't done much. I've done more with change data capture, where I'm just getting events. I'm not publishing events, so I'm not sure what they're talking about here. But I would think that when you because when you publish an event, you're you're talking to you know the server, mm-hmm. and you're saying here's my event, and you should get an immediate response to that. That's like, yep, so I'm in the server. Got your event. Cool. Like whether it's just a a 200 or some kind of response. I don't know if it's within apex, like, but certainly that you get a, you get a response. Um, well, and if nothing else, like if no exception is thrown and your published method returns. Now I understand that the, obviously when, when subscribers get notified of that message is a whole asynchronous separate thing that you're not going to get notified about, but you, but you shouldn't because that would break the pub sub. My whole pub sub model is like, you're not, you don't even know who's subscribing and you shouldn't know who's subscribing. Right. Yeah. So, but are we saying that, or is the problem here that as a publisher, when you publish a platform event, you don't know whether your publish was successful? That that seems odd to me. It does seem odd. Um, so I don't know what problem that's trying to solve. But that all depends on the mechanism that Salesforce is using to publish the event. Because if if I think about it this way. Because you are kind of creating this um, this data type, we'll just call it for lack of a better term, because it, to, to Apex, it almost looks like an object. Um, you instantiate this object, and you, you call a different method, but you essentially are basically inserting this message into a queue, and that gets picked up and published. And if, if I look at it that way, then it might be that 
yes, you've published the message to the queue, but the queue hasn't processed that. And maybe that's the feedback mechanism that you need. Yeah. Um, hmm. I just read an, another comment. So by the way, the PMs, his name is Raj Advani. Um, but he says, yeah, the, this pilot is to make sure customers know that their event was published. And then someone says, oh, so it's for events that take part in transaction in transactions. Hmm. So that's that's a whole other wrinkle because normally um, the transaction can get rolled back. Yeah, and I was going to say normally, you know, messaging systems don't really have transactions, but they, they kind of do because I'm thinking of like um, Rabbit and Active and and all these like they they have like JMS things. They do they do support transactions, but I thought that was on this. I thought that was on the subscriber side. Like when you get notified of a of a message from like a JMS message broker, you process the message. And when you're done, you usually then there's like a, it's almost like a, um, I forget what they call it, but you let the server know that, okay, I've, I have successfully published that message. I'm sorry. I've successfully consumed this message. And for topics, this is really important, which Mm -hmm. is so topics are different than pub sub because topics are like, um, publish a message to a topic and then any of the subscribers can can get that message but only one of them will get the message like let's say you have a you publish um topics or you publish uh, messages to some topic and there you have a bunch of just like almost like worker worker threads mm-hmm. that can just grab these there are like little work items off this off of this topic well you don't want two of those worker threads to both grab the same message Right. So that's why these message systems you know, that you can ensure with a topic that you're ensured that it's a it's a once and only once semantics. Um, so th- and that's why it's important that when a when a, like a you know subscriber does pick up a message off the topic that it processes it successfully and then let the server know that I've successfully processed this because if 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 you don't have that second step then the then the the message broker doesn't really know that that message was successfully processed. And what's great is you can say if something happens or, you know, some exceptions thrown, then you can let the server know, Hey, I, this was not successful. And it puts it back in the queue. Mm. And then either another thread can pick it up later, or it can actually get sent to like a, what they call like a dead letter queue. which is kind of a pattern. where like, um, we weren't able to process this. So put this in a, put this in a, back in a different queue. Cause we, if we put this back in our same topic, Someone's just going to keep pulling it back off over and over and over and over. And maybe there's something wrong with the data of that. Like it doesn't make sense just to slam all these resources over and over and over if it's, if you're not going to succeed. So put it in a dead letter queue. And then that's something that people can review later or whatever, or maybe there's some other process to deal with those to maybe log them to some kind of error message and notify people or whatever. But that's why it's, you know, it's important for subscribers to be able to say, yes, I successfully processed that message or no, I was not successful take it back broker and do something with it. So maybe back to the platform events thing. If you publish a platform event and it's from a transaction, part of a transaction. And if that transaction gets rolled back, then I guess your platform event doesn't get published. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. And as a, as the publisher of that event, you would like to know that, Oh, by the way, because of whatever reason, this, transaction got rolled back your your you um your message didn't get published and then you'd get a callback and since it's in a transaction i guess that makes sense it could be a callback because it's they probably want it to be asynchronous just for kind of performance and mm-hmm. thread blocking reasons 
Yeah. I don't know. Does that make more sense? Transactions? That, I, that I just, does make more sense. Otherwise, I just can't see why you wouldn't know. When you publish it, I mean, it's published. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I see, I see that. No. Anyway, it's funny. It's, <laughs> every time you think messaging is a solved problem, um, because gosh, I, I can remember, you know, these, what were the early systems? Like, I feel like Tibco was a big message broker and there was these, you know, huge enterprise mainframe brokers. But then like, um, you know, the Java world, um, got into the messaging systems early. And then what was Microsoft's called? The DTC? Was that, was that, was their distributed transaction? No, 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 that was, that was, um, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't DTC. DTC is their, is their, um, like global trend, kind of their XA transaction manager. Um, what was their message queue called? I just remember it from my early Microsoft days. Um, active, wasn't, I'm sure it was something like active message or something like that. <laughs> Microsoft message broker. What would that be called? Oh, now they just call it message queuing, MSMQ. MSMQ is dead. Yeah, I wanted uh, to say it was uh, something like just Q, but Microsoft Q, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, as soon as, you know, as soon as I think messaging is a solved problem, like someone comes up with just a killer, like, you know, something like Kafka comes around, which is, I feel like, solves different problems in a, in a way. But depending on how you're dealing with messages, like Kafka can be a much more high performance way to do it. Um, remember when rabbit MQ came out, it kind of changed the world a little bit of messaging. Mm-hmm. Anyway, naturally that was kind of interesting. Uh, I saw something else. Actually, I heard this on a podcast. Who was it? Oh, it was the, um, it was the, um, what's that? Kotlin, the Kotlin, the James Ward and Bruce Eccles podcast gone. Happy developer, happy path, happy path, Pro- happy path podcast. Happy Path Programming. For some reason, it, now that you mentioned, I can't. It's strong. Okay, but no, they had this guy Dan North on, who I guess is one of these kind of OG Agile guys. But he he had this great little quip, and because they were ta- they talked briefly, kind of about Agile, just because like I don't know, it's one of these things. Again, been around forever now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Agile's probably been around for longer than most people listening to this right now have been alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but still, like, so many people get it wrong still. Uh, it's so easy to like have it be manipulated or just like lose touch of just the principles and yeah things that really make it what it is. But this, this is what he said. He said, agile is three things, small iterations, feedback. He just said feedback, but I'm going to, I'm going to modify this. Say quick, quick, quick feedback, mm-hmm. quick and often feedback. Right. And then third one is good engineering. And really he just said small iterations, feedback, engineering. He said, that's agile. That's all it is. Oops. He said, anyone who tells you that it's less than that doesn't understand what agile is. And anyone who tells you it's something more than that is trying to sell you something. Well, th- those first two things, I think, illustrate why it fails and it. I can't see it working in consulting or at least in the type of implementations that, that we do with Salesforce in general, not us as in you and me, I mean, as an industry in general. I mean, I know there are people out there doing Agile and they say they're doing it successfully, but... Well, the whole world of MBAs out there and consultants and consulting shops, first of all, they 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 reinforce and they continue to train everyone else in the world that um, you need, boy, you need a big contract, tight contract with, a, you know, a 50-page MSA and a 100-page SOW, and mm-hmm. you better, you know, get all your, you know, make sure all your requirements are in there. God, why do I feel like I'm clipping? I just keep hearing that. Super annoying. Anyway, um, 
yeah, you know, get it, you know, get, get everything in the contract and, and everyone makes to sure, make, has to make sure their ass is covered. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, and that's the, just the still, I think the way, and well, again, I, I do, it. I blame these, I blame these business schools that kick out these mindless MBAs um, that don't really, they don't understand value. They don't understand um, value flow and creation and they don't understand trust. It's just all about lawyering. And of course, you know, the whole legal system, you got to lawyer the shit out of everything. We want, we want massive contracts because those cost money and mm-hmm. we want people to litigate. That's so great. That's, that's, that's what this country was founded on. I feel like, you know, that's what we're all about. Uh, I hate to admit that. So that's the system we're fighting. It's not that, you know, and, and I think, I mean, every, I feel like all consulting companies, especially ones that want to work in a more agile way, like we do, we're, we're still, we're always fighting that. I mean, I'm, I'm on, on almost every deal. I mean, there, I will say it's a lot better than it was even, even 10 years ago in terms mm-hmm. of there are clients and there are people at organizations who, again, cause most people, you know, who are under the age of 45, um, have kind of grown up with it. I mean, they've, it was, it's a thing. It's always been a, it's been a thing most of their life. I mean, it's, it's a term in their, their vocabulary. Yeah, right. And, and a lot of them, even though they may not be like, you know, seasoned, like agile pros, like they know they want it because they're, because they, it's something about it clicks with them. Like either they've heard of other people that did it and were successful or like, or maybe they really understand that like they get the principles. Like the yeah, other, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a way better chance of a su- successful project if we do these three things. And if we tr- just trust, if we, if we can just trust each other to some degree. Yeah, but that trust is never there. Well, you are the biggest negative Nancy in the world. So everyone should take everything you say with a grain of salt. That's true. I agree. Yeah. But I mean, the reality is, and if I have to smack reality into people, I will. Because all these things, things, things all, of these, ugh, all of these things sound good. Um, but it's it's a process. It's a scientific method process of breaking everything down to its smallest components and iterating and and you know taking a small component, mastering it, and then moving on to the next. It is, a but data. people aren't willing to do that in the corporate world. They want they don't want to see that you have this widget on the screen that does X Y Z. They want to see that you have this entire application yes. built that does everything they said they wanted it to. Exactly. Do. They they want to know that by X date they're going to get. Right. They want to know exactly what it's what's going to be in it. And what we're telling them is like, well, no, you don't get that. We're not going to tell you exactly what's going to be in it because if we if we tell you that now, that means we are foregoing everything we're going to learn throughout this process. And instead of using that information, that data that we're building, mm-hmm. to make this a better thing and to and to lower risk and give you a, a better chances of positive business outcomes, instead of doing all those things, you're wanting to guarantee you, you're you're saying that I know exactly uh, we're at point A and I know exactly where point B is, and I know ex- I know point B is exactly what I want, and that's that's what's false. That's what's false. Well, that's the lie we tell you ourselves. think you know what you want in point B. That's the lie we tell. That, that's what that's the lie that all of us in the process tells ourselves. Sales tells lies to themselves saying these are the exact number of licenses you need. Um, yeah, yeah. Delivery lies to themselves saying that, yeah, we can deliver all those requirements in this time frame. Uncancelable and the contract. client is lying to themselves <laughs> thinking that they understand all of the requirements. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying there are there are enlightened people out there. I mean, we have clients that that are into this and trust us. A lot of them don't. I mean, a lot of them don't. They don't, they don't get it. They don't. A lot of people don't get it. Still, 
But some some people doubt it there. But I'm saying the whole system is still working against them. The 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 business schools, mm-hmm. and I know people are going to disagree with me on that because there's probably some business schools and some professors out there that are that are trying to teach you know the right thing, in my mind. Um, but the legal system is kind of against all this. They hate this. I hate it. Well, yeah, I mean, because there's, I mean, we're the United States of lawyers, so right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well. <sighs> I mean, anything within within business and, and money that requires trust is is iffy, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. I mean, go back to my question the last episode. I do feel like I'm clipping. I hear something. I don't know what it is, but when I raise my voice, I hear something. I'm just going to turn us down. But um, I, I we were talking about SLAs, and I asked I asked the question: Are SLAs really worth doing? And your response was yes, because you need if you're talking about me being the other side. You need me to have skin in the game that this system is going to be up and running. But that inherently means that there's no trust there. The, the only way to incentivize our relationship and our trust is to make sure that, that there's monetary consequences to this, to this relationship. Yeah. There's no, that's not trust. That's obligation. Yeah, well, okay. So, and I don't think agile is the great, is, is the right thing for every kind of problem. Like if your problem is, I just need electricity at my house. Um, I, I know I need 120 volt, 60 Hertz electricity at my house. I, I know I'm pretty, and again, maybe this is, you know, famous last words. I know, I know what my point B is here. I know exactly what my point B is. Um, it's a simple thing and it's very painful if there's an outage. And if there's no consequence to the service provider for outages, then you know the incentives aren't really well aligned, and I feel like agile. A lot of agile is all about aligning incentives. Well, electricity is is a it's easy to argue against because it's you're not you're charged for usage. You're not even charged for the implementation of it of getting the yeah. box put in. Um, all of that's separate. So there's just it's just a matter of just saying, yeah, we're going to have that service. And if they if the electricity goes out, you don't get a payment exactly. No, that says don't. it goes out. Yeah. You're just trusting that it's going to be on. Right. And you're trusting that they're going to maintain that service. Yeah. But think of like AWS, like, the, you know, um, if, um, or like in businesses, like their internet, their big, huge, you know, optical internet lines or whatever they are. Um, you know, the, the your phone company, your telecom provider is saying, you know, hey, we want you to, we want your business. Mm-hmm. Um, these are expensive lines, but you know you need them, and we want we want your business. Mm-hmm. And then I when and then the customer says, "Then well, okay, sure, um, it's pretty high price you're charging us, and and but that's fine because this is super important. Like we'll we'll lose a million dollars an hour for every hour we're down without internet. So um, this is super important to us. We're going to spend a lot of money on it, and um, but we need an SLA because um, we need you to feel the pain." If you if your service goes down as much as we feel the pain, because if True. not, then you don't really have the it's it's an incentive alignment thing, I think. But so does but, agile but, does, but and I, I guess I'm arguing to the point saying that from these bullet points that, that that you mentioned, that the reason all of these these bullet points will fail is because of a lack of trust, and thus the first bullet of agile should be trust. And if you can't trust, then there's there's no hope for agile. Oh, I would agree with that. 
Um, where is here we go? But and to your point <clears throat> of all this lawyer stuff, it, it's and and we say lawyers because we're talking about the consequences of failure. We're talking about the the risk mitigation that happens, and that's what changes a project from being more agile or potentially being agile into something more waterfall like because. We're all trying to cover our asses. We're trying to mitigate the risk by documenting up front what's going to be in this, so to speak, iteration mm. um, to the point where there's no wiggle room. There's no ad, There's no agility there anymore. Right. You have to build this and you have to deliver this at the end of the sprint because otherwise there's consequences. Yeah. yeah. But I, was, I just had to pull up the – make sure I get this right. But one of the, one of the four whatever things is customer collaboration. Oh, and these are like we value the thing on the left more than the thing on the right. Not that we don't value the thing on the right, but we value the thing on the left more. So it's customer collaboration over contract negotiation. And that's to me, that's the that's like the trust thing. Also, I mean, that, I think I, here's another one that's I think it hits on trust individuals. We value individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Yeah, I subscribe to that as well. But because the more you, the more the more you think you've contracted up front for everything you think you're going to want, the more that you've tried to formalize everything into into very strict detailed processes and tools to reinforce those. You are what you're trying you're trying to mitigate risk, risk of humans not doing the right thing and you're actually devaluing your humans as as part of that also. You're like you're actually taking Assuming you have, you know, reasonably intelligent, um, competent humans, mm-hmm. you're wasting you're wasting their abilities. They're sure. they're right there. I mean, humans are incredibly humans are still far more intelligent than any kind of AI or anything, right? And you're saying, no, you know what? Let's just ignore all that. But that's human nature too. That's ego. It that's, is ego. I am the yeah. smartest person in the room. These guys are idiots. I yeah. can't trust them to, trust. To, to build this. Where's my bell? <laughs> exactly what it is. I mean, it all comes down to trust. And unfortunately, in the way we've structured our business and the way we've, we've been taught, like you said, none of it has anything to do with trust. It all has to do with risk mitigation and, and making the lawyers happy. What does? Are you talking about our business? No, business in general. Oh, okay. The, the, the wor- yeah. It's- yeah. No, the, and, and the lawyers are always, that's why we're always, I mean, we always are fighting lawyers. I mean, all of them. Ours, others. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, you have to have them, but you also have to, your business people have to be competent enough to know how to wield and, and wrangle with the lawyers. Yeah. Because they will, they will ruin, they'll ruin your business. They'll ruin a deal. They'll prevent humans from getting together and doing good things. Well, I think the, the, you rea- ha- the reality is that the, how do I say this? The way... Building or defining what you want built is completely different from how you build it. I'm not sure a better way to say that. And it's two different people and it's two different mindsets and it's two different egos. It's just, they don't, they don't collaborate. They don't mix their oil and water. Yeah. Well, it's like no one wants a, a saw hole or a hole saw. They want a hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not a bad analogy. Yeah, <laughs> but you can't you can't sell holes. <laughs> you can sell hole saws. Yeah. But what did you just say? You said um, I was I was 
playing off of what you just said. Um, but I forgot your words now because my words weren't that great. No, no, I was, they were I was good. saying that the, the, that the, that there's a divide between what you want built and how it's yeah, built. Yeah. Okay. And because we're, we're litigating against how something's built or the end result where we're locking or preventing any kind of creativity yeah. or any agility that could happen in the process of developing that end result. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, for people listening, I mean, you know, you and I are, everything we're talking about is biased in terms of like the type of work that we do and we've done for decades. It's we're, we're you know, we're talking about like intellectual and creative endeavors mm-hmm. where there's a lots of unknowns. There's a lot that's going to be learned along the way. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that even scares, uh, uh, you know, people who are on the buying end of, of these types of services, just to hear that, to hear that there's a lot we don't know. Right. And that's when, I mean, that's, you know, we do a lot of educating. I do a lot of educating. Um, I'm involved quite a bit in, in sales processes and, um, you know, getting deals done and even, even on the back end. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm always trying to get people to feel comfortable. Yeah. You got to embrace that that we don't know everything. It's the ego thing. You have to put the ego aside. You don't know exactly what you want. There's there's going to be a lot that's learned. A lot mm-hmm. of we're not just building the product. We're not building your uh student application system. We're not building your your Salesforce org. I mean, we are building those things, but we're building a lot more than that. We're creating all kinds of knowledge. Yeah. And we're learning things, not only about the systems, but about the processes, the people, the stakeholders, the customers, the users. Um, and if you are not incorporating those, that newfound data into what you're building, then you will most definitely end up in a worse place than if you had. And can we not just admit that? Yeah. Embrace it. It's okay. It's embracing the fact that, that what we're building is not the end goal. It's it's it has to continue. No, to the evolve. the business value is the end goal. The end goal is not is not the saw. It's the whole. You know, and that it, that, it, that that analogy may not fit super well to what we're talking about now, but you know, yeah, you should you should really define these projects in terms of business outcomes, not oh a web application with six up to six screens with up to four triggers with, you know, like screw all that. That's yeah. bullshit. Yeah. We'll figure that shit out later. And cause we don't know exactly what the right number of all those things. Or is. Let, let me, add, let right me, let me add to that rant and say, and no code. It's all, it's all, it's all amateur. Anytime you hear people talking like that, that is just amateur yeah. to me in, in my opinion. No, I agree. I, I, I think it should be measured against business outcomes, but, Getting someone to admit that 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 unfortunately that requires some some analytic study at the front to understand what your current state is, and then it requires an, a, an analytic study at the end of where you're at and whether or not Absolutely. you've accomplished that. And this is this is this is why my I feel like the educating that we all must do never ends. And it's not just about the person on the buying end; it's the person on the selling and the supplying end. We have to always keep in mind that it's not just our job to build the tables and the scripts and the jar files and the page layouts. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's actually not really our job. (laughs) Our job was that thing we talked about at the beginning of the project, the outcomes that the client wants to get. Right. You know, the increased number of this, the more efficiency in that, all those things like that's what they want. 
So just because you finished your three flows and your two triggers and your four unit test and your page layouts and your security profiles, we are done. <laughs> you know, sign off, please, client. No. Yeah. You just completely missed it. You missed the point. You're not doing your job. You're not a good consultant. Yeah. Because the client doesn't want the saw. They right. want the hole. I know I get a little ranty on these things. No, that was a good rant. I, I, I can't disagree with that. It's, <laughs> and, but the, the, the discussion, and I guess this is always, what always gets me and where my cynicism comes in is that these discussions are great. And I think they're happening all the time and people will nod their head and say yes over and over. If you were in front of an audience of 2000 people, you'd see a wave of nods. Oh, yeah. Yes. And yes. Yep. The problem is implementing this. The problem is, is, is actually doing it and carrying it out. And that that's more of an art form than it is a uh, it, than a skill, I guess. Because well, it's it's easy to it's easy to get caught up in the actual mechanics. This is where I think where a lot of scrum goes wrong. People get so caught up in the you know it's the the ceremony for the sake yeah. Of it's ceremony. like the sit and kneel yeah. stand. Like I feel like the Catholic thing. It's like it's not just about sitting, kneeling, and standing. I'm not even Catholic. Um, I did go through some portion of CCD or whatever it's called, but never finished. Um, it's that's we don't do that just to do that. It's not exercise. It's not calisthenics. It's you know. <laughs> there's like remember why we do those. Remember what that symbolizes. Yeah. Um, and so people get so caught up in oh yeah, the, the stand up has to be 15 minutes and yeah you were 60 seconds too long on that and you know we you know whatever I mean just all the that people people get really at a lot of ceremony and 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 really strict processes to their agile mm -hmm. um, initiatives and they lose track of those. You got to go back to those principles. So there's a lot of that. And I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of risk mitigation again, that, that ruins it. And that is at the start of the project, at least let's take it from a consulting perspective. You want to know that, that you're going to be able to deliver this in, in a somewhat profitable way. So you're trying to predict in some way what it's going to take to build these various widgets throughout the process. And you might pad it a little bit just to kind of give yourself some leeway um, for those unexpected issues or for iterations to happen. Um, but even that in itself is, is detrimental to the agile process. The fact that you're trying to predict the outcome. Well, that's, I mean, are you talking about iterations? I'm talking about the the upfront risk mitigation that happens when when you try to develop a process around agile from a company perspective, from a profitability perspective. When you're trying to understand, do I have enough time built into this? Mm -hmm. uh, because um, unfortunately, I have yet to see an agile Salesforce implementation project that didn't come with a budget. There's always a budget. Sure. There's not some open ended check that says. Okay, we'll just keep going until it's done. No, Even not, that's what Agile would love. No, I don't actually. I, I would push back on that. I don't think Agile says you need an open-ended budget. I think what Agile says is you have to. Um, you, you, I'm trying to think of what yeah, the actual principles. What they I think which the evolution, the modern evolution of Agile, had does come with a budget. I think the original inception of Agile was built on trust and the fact that within each iteration you had a working product. And thus, with each iteration, you could choose whether or not to add more budget, or you could spend more money to get to the next phase of that. Right, right. And it's it's not but the modern the modern take of agile and trying to incorporate it into our waterfall world 
was here's a budget and can you iterate within that budget? <laughs> so it's like, right. It's like, oh yeah, let's do agile. Here's your fixed budget and here's your fixed, uh, scope margin go, now scope. now goes just figure out how to split that up into your little cute little iterations you do and your stand-ups and stuff yeah and that's and that's what you know them that's what these you know these people that um that are that are the i would say you know more experts and the you know luminaries on this stuff that, I mean, that's what i hear them most often kind of grousing about is is that is we've 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 productized systematized and over commercialized agile Mm-hmm. And then just like you just see you everywhere you look, you see people like doing it, you know, quote unquote wrong. Yeah. Now the, the concept, uh, what is it called? What is the concept that I, that I, my utopian concept that I love the idea of, but I don't know if it's really practical, but it's the idea that you, it's value priced implement, uh, value pricing, oh, like value pricing. Yeah. Okay. Where you, you, you figure out what the value of whatever this thing is you're trying to do this, this project. Yeah. And the implementer or the people that you're paying to do it takes a percentage of that value, value. Yeah. not, not hours, not I'm spent, I'm charging you a hundred hours and we're spending a hundred hours and that's blah, blah, blah numbers. Yeah. It's, we're all in this together. This, this should result if everyone did their homework correctly in a net of, of a, this product's worth a million dollars or something. And I take 10% of that. So I get a hundred thousand, whatever. It doesn't matter how many hours I spend, how many people I throw at the product at, at the issue or whatever. I just know that's what I get because that's my percentage of that value. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff. And that, this guy, Jonathan Stark, who has, has this you know epic multi-year rant and has helped build a whole business around value pricing and helping mm-hmm. people get into value pricing. Um, he's got a lot of interesting stuff that people want to check him out. But uh, <clears throat> it, it, honestly, it goes back to the whole versus the saw thing. Like I, The thing I love about just, I guess, th- even thinking of value pricing um, is that it puts the focus in the right place. Mm-hmm. Which is, you don't necessarily want this. I, I know you think you do because everyone thinks they know what they want. They want they need a you know again a, a widget with these this many buttons and that many switches and that has this certain spec and and really it's like value pricing is like well let's let's look at value. I mean let's look at what your what outcomes you want. Mm-hmm. You know, again it's it's like. Don't confuse the end value with the thing that it takes to get there. They're different things. And you should think about the value of that end thing. Right. And also the thing about, I like about what Jonathan Stark says about value pricing is he always likes to make sure the one reason he likes to focus on value pricing, in addition to, I think he's, it, of course, from a selfish perspective, it, it probably in a lot of cases allows him to capture in, in a fair way, I think, because he's up for fun about it, capture more of that value that he generates. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. He also makes his kind of general um, rule of thumb or benchmark, I guess, is that the, he should be producing 10 times more. The project needs to produce 10 times more value than than what he's capturing as his fees. And if it doesn't pass that kind of 10x benchmark, then he st- takes a step back and asks more questions. Should you really do this? You know, is there a better option? Is there maybe there's a cheaper option? Maybe there's something that'll get you further down the road until you have more information. Then you can make a more informed decision, which is a very agile approach to th- as, as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it really just a lot of this. So much of this gets back to people just need to really admit, need to try to admit that they don't exactly know what they need. Right. And if we can trust each other, if you trust that, like my team knows what we're doing and we're a good fit for you. Then let's go on this journey together because that is it, it sounds crazy to lawyers, but it is by far the 
best way to mitigate your risk, your risk of getting to the end of your budget and not having something that works for you, not having something that's actually valuable. Mm-hmm. It's mitigating risk to say, we don't know exactly where we're going. We know we, we have a general idea of like the business outcome and the value we want. We don't know the exact buttons and knobs that need that it's going to take to, to get us that. So let's go on this journey together and we're mitigating risk. We're getting, we're putting ourselves in a much better position to end up in a good place. Right. But that's hard for people to admit, John. It's, it's hard for it's people hard to, for people to admit, and it's hard for people to uh, come up with that number of what the value is. Um, I, 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 the, I, the way I see it working is they, they pull some num- random number out of their, their hat in budgeting and says, this is your budget. Well, a lot now of go out and get yeah. some bids yeah. and see who can get who can fit that budget. Uh, yeah, that's well. That's why I also I don't I don't really like participating in like the whole like RFPs and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. It's I mean that's just a, a race to the bottom, and it and it's 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 about the best way an organization can say we have no idea how to do this, and we're just letting you know that we have no idea, and we're trying to get people into bad bad contracts. <laughs> That's only because, says, because that's uh, the only way we're going to grow, and our, and that's the only way we're going to get to thirty billion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say something else, but I forgot. So anyway, well, this this ended up being way more of a rant than I wanted. All from those three little things. Don't forget them: small iterations, quick feedback, good engineering, solid. You got to add trust to that. I don't think you can have it without trust. Well. True. I think you can probably, you can add a lot of things to this, but it's like it. Well, I, yeah, I guess the only way for these three things, like I said, the only so, way for those three things to work is if, if trust is so, there. So those were three, ta- those are, I think, I guess maybe you could say, what are the, these are the three tangible things that is, makes up agile. Sure. It, um, yeah. Th- it, and those come out of, I think all the values. Trust is one of those values. You know, yeah. co- collaboration over contract negotiation. Mm-hmm. But once you, so you understand all those values and then, cause that's why you have to work from, from principles. Yeah. Um, that's how you come up with what are your tangible things? What kind of process are you going to have? What kind of contract are you? Cause you do have to have a contract. You know, those all have to flow from principles. Yeah. But yeah, if you look at those things, small iterations, quick feedback, solid engineering, those are all, those are tangible things. But I think trust is just an underlying assumption. You know, you've got all these values that under underlie these things. I don't know. Um, did you see that? <laughs> this, this is such an Amazon thing to do, but it's it's in the show notes. Um, I know it's it's, it's, a, it's a new did you world. See this? So Amazon has introduced a bizarre metaverse like game to train people how to use AWS. I wanted to tweet something the other day about this to like the Trailhead team, saying. I don't know if I really want you to do something like this or if I really want you to not do something like this. How do you know they're not already <laughs> working on that, Jeremy? Well, <laughs> they may be. Um, I also have to be careful about what I say. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it, this looks, I just, it's got screenshots in there. It's very bizarre. Um, oh, no. I, I, yeah. So it's I called, it. it's called Cloud Quest, and it's an online role playing game that helps uh, to, helps people build cloud computing skills. I mean, it's kind of like it's their, it's their gamified learning system and not too different than something like trailhead, but this is just, yeah, you're in a, you have your avatar. What is that what we call them? Your, mm-hmm. your, your personification in this world. They're avatars. Yeah. Yeah. 
And now, can you wear an Oculus or something for this? Or how does this in any of your, any of these three D things work? Or, how, or is it just uh, on a two D screen? Doesn't so. Amazon own? Is it Oculus? No, that's own? Facebook. That's Facebook. I thought Amazon. I'm sure Amazon owns one of them. I don't know. I don't know. There's. I can't wait for Apple's. By the way, Apple's or Google's. Apple's, Google's working on no Apple's. Too. I don't know. I mean, because I was just thinking the other night, like I would really. We don't have a TV in our bedroom, and. I wouldn't like to lay down. I know you're not supposed to do this. Sleep experts tell you not to do this, but mm-hmm. I would like to lay down in bed and watch watch a show. And because if right now, if I do want to do that, I just I, I lay down in bed and I, I'm holding my phone in front of my face. Yeah, I I made a recommendation <laughs> to your wife yesterday that to get you an old man stand like I have an old man stand. That's what we call it. But it's basically a stand that holds your your in my case my iPad, but you can use it for a phone so you yeah. don't drop it on your face. <laughs> I've of course, that. that's a that's a good sign that you should go to sleep. Uh, well, face, but. that's true. Um, then I'm like, you know, but I really just because I have just this blank wall that's right when you're staring at when you're laying in bed. I'm like, I just need a TV on that wall. So I've been thinking about it forever. I just haven't pulled the trigger, you know. But the, but then I was thinking, oh, wait a minute, Apple's. I've already said that if Apple comes out, and I, I think they will with one of these VR things, I'm gonna I'm gonna get it. The problem with the VR headsets, and it's gonna it's gonna ruin your your idea here, is that they're really heavy and th- well, they're but not we'll really see. good we'll for laying down. I know, but we'll see what Apple's is. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's kind of a some a, what of a hybrid between like Google Glass and and an Oculus, then that could be a good something lightweight, comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you feel like, I mean, of course, Apple's gonna focus on because they're Apple's like the most successful wearables company probably in the world, right? Have to be. And yeah, so, so yeah. you know, you would expect them to make the best, you know, in terms of comfort, weight, all that stuff. Like they're going to do a good. And if they do, I mean, that, I'm just saying that could be a killer yeah. laying in bed and watching TV device. I want to say that I, I'm, and I don't know. I have heard that they're working on VR, but I've heard, also heard that they're going to skip VR and focus on aug- augmented reality. Is, is that pat? Is AR past VR? I don't feel like it's a. I, th- I don't feel. I don't feel like it's an either or. Like you could have both. Well, I guess with AR you have to be well, able to VR, see. VR, VR, so AR would require like l- l- glasses you can see through, right? Yeah, AR, AR kind of augments the world around you, and yeah. you, you can, you can, you're, you're, it's that you're augmenting it. But the problem with VR is there's a lot of problems with it in the fact that you have to be in a room somewhere. Um, there's safety issues because you can't see anything around your surroundings or anything unless it had cameras they and, do. and and projected so that the oculus to you. is badass the way this right my kid has one it's crazy yeah so the yeah the first thing you do is when you put it on is you set up like I feel there's a word for it like the perimeter zone or whatever mm-hmm. and it makes you like it makes you make sure that it's clear and then and then once your game or whatever you go back to whatever like then it turns the cameras off you can't see anything because when you're doing that process it you, it's got cameras on it and so mm-hmm. you, what you're seeing the, you're seeing your real right. world then you're when you're back in your game, you don't see any of that. But as soon as you start to step out, even if your hand just goes out of it, like you can suddenly see your your real hand. Mm-hmm. So it's somehow you know it's, the cameras are always on, I think, and it somehow only is showing you the part of your body that's outside of that zone. Yeah, it's showing that you're. St- and then if you step out of it, then it just it, it's the cameras are on and you can't even see. You have to step back so you can see your game again. It's yeah. really killer. Yeah, those are all evolutions that helped improve the safety issues of, of early iterations of vr yeah so, oh yeah um it's it still has a ways to go in terms of just its portability and it's uh just the weight of it yeah oh it's um, they're not like the oculus is not comfortable yeah you really and if you have wear glasses it's more of a pain in the ass there's um there is a thing that you put 
on over your glasses that, or maybe it plugs into the Oculus itself that kind of offsets it a little further from your face mm-hmm. so that you doesn't, so it's not smashing your glasses against your face. Oh yeah. I didn't think about it that. It actually works. Okay. I've done yeah. it. I used it before. I think, although I think my son lost, he lost ours, but he doesn't wear glasses, so he doesn't care. Um, but they're, yeah, they're, they're heavy. Yeah. The, the current Oculus is heavy. And you really have to strap it up and like mm-hmm. adjust all these straps and everything. It's like putting a, I don't know. Yeah. It's not, not great. Yeah, it's not something I would want to wear all the time. But man, if Apple came out with something really that kind of struck all the right balances, that would be, that'd be nice. The problem with, with all of these is just and the same problem that Google went through with their, with their augmented reality glasses, which is just privacy concerns, safety concerns. I mean, because even with augmented reality, people were reporting that people were not looking at, even though they could see the world around them, they weren't looking at the world around them. Yeah. They were looking at whatever uh, widget or whatever was mm. on the, was on the corner of their eye, and they were running into things, running into people, yeah. um, all of those things. It's just, we think we're more multitasking than we really are. It reminds yeah. me of school zones. Like, I feel like when everyone's driving through a school zone, especially with people that are trying to drive the school zone speed limit. Yeah, I feel like your eye, my eyes are. I'm always looking at my speedometer. I'm scared because if you get a if you get a ticket, even for four miles over the speed limit in a school zone, there's all kinds of special laws and, and double fees and everything for the for the school zone ones. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm always staring at my speedometer, which means instead you're not of looking at the road, I'm, instead of looking out for kids, I should yeah. be just driving at a reasonable speed. And of course, I know you have to put you have to draw the line somewhere. Like, but I feel like yeah, I mean, you really are. Um, you're looking at your speedometer instead of for kids. <laughs> that goes back to the tell me how you're going to measure me. Argument. I know. Well, that's the nice thing about heads up. My car has a heads up display, but there's a those things really fall. There's one um, Achilles heel to heads up displays. You know what it is? Mm-mm. Polarized sunglasses. Oh, can't see it. Yeah, and I'm and I love polarized sunglasses, so I can't. And I forgot. I'm like, well, I can't see my heads up display yeah. if, I, if I'm wearing those. So whatever. Or not? It's not heads. Oh yeah, it's a HUD, right? Mm-hmm. On the one, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, John, I feel like I'm dominating. What's on your? Well, your topics are good. Not really. This is just random crap I found. <laughs> well, I had a few. One of them is kind of political, so I don't want to get into oh. it too much. But I... okay, I'm gonna hang on. Oh, what was that? You I hearing in... that? Yes, it went into the mic. Oh, I forgot to hang on. Sorry about that. Let me go on. Uh... I've got my sound audio piped in, and I need to put it on. What's it? How do you do that again? Do not disturb, right? Mm-hmm. Focus. That's what it's called. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Go ahead. Sorry. What were you going to say though? No, I just I just thought of a topic that I had to I have to mention. So I, I just okay, wrote it we'll down. Okay, we'll do it now. Okay. Um, CSS tricks sold to DigitalOcean. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it'll still be maintained as a separate site. And he'll still do his thing. They they're just looking for more eyeball content to funnel people into their service. And I'm it's a great way for Chris to monetize yeah. this site. He's I worked so hard to build site consistently weekly. I mean, that had to be a seven figure deal. Yeah, I hope so. I, hope I mean, it was nice payday for him. Yeah, I mean that is that I, is. Yeah, he's not even going to be writing. I thought I read that he's going to over. It's like it's going to turn into a more of a um, guest authoring or oh, it has it has been for a long time. So he 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 writes a. You know, a, a small share of the articles these days on CSS. Well, tricks. yeah, I know that. But what I'm saying is, I think, uh, who was it that bought it? Digital, Digital Ocean. Ocean. Yeah. They have like, they have a program 
where you write, it's like a write, a pay to write or something, some kind of program that you opt into and you, you basically write articles and you get paid for them. So it's all part of their whole system. Yeah. So he's opting into that. So he, he's going to be even further removed from all that, I think. Uh, I'm not even sure if he's, other than the site, what his role is going to be. Um, what? Hang on. Uh, who who bought um who who does Coder right? Is it Jupiter? Oh, Jupiter Broadcasting. Now that's because this reminds me of that Linux. It was a Linux Academy. Okay, when was that? Linux Academy acquires Jupiter Broadcasting. They announced that in 2018. Wow, I can't believe it was that long ago. But then, like a year ago, they basically spun it back out. I don't know if it wasn't working out or whatever. I mean, it's they're super small. Like, Super um, Broadcasting is the, this, I think one guy that kind of owns it and runs it. And they're, they're yeah, like a half a dozen shows mm-hmm. where he has other guest hosts or whatever. But it's, it's a small little lifestyle business. Um, but yeah, they spun it back out. So I don't know if it wasn't working. It's kind of cool that Linux Academy just let him, hey, this isn't working out. Like, we'll let you just take your brand and everything back. That's another. Yeah, it'd be nice if that's in the contract that he can. He can. I don't know if it up. was in the contract, but that's what it. You know, um, who knows? But that's what ended up happening. And I think they he retained them as a sponsor, so I think they still sponsor some of his shows. Mm. They just don't own them anymore. But yeah, this CSS trick still is way bigger. It's got to be. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are on like you know number of hits or whatever the CSS tricks gets, but it's it is the dominant source for a lot of CSS information and just web design stuff. Yeah. And he still does, um, code pen, right? Chris Coyer. I don't, I don't know. Do you I'm, use code pen? Oh, code I mean, I, I, on occasion, but I, it's not like a part of my tool set. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I'm guessing cause, um, there's a, I mean, you can do a ton free, but as a business or whatever, you can actually, you can subscribe to like, you know, pay levels on, mm-hmm. on code pen. To get you like private stuff and additional features, more enterprise features, probably SAML, you know, uh, federated logins, all that kind of crap that enterprises always want. Um, CodePen Pro is what it's called. But I think that, I don't know which makes him more money, but I I don't think CodePen was part of the deal at all. I think it was just CSS tricks. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, Chris is an interesting dude. That's, um, he's got that, what's his podcast called? I can't tell you. Yeah, I forget. It's pretty good though. Yeah. Shop talk. Shop talk show? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. Go ahead, John. I just wanted to mention that because I thought that was pretty exciting. I mean, as someone who over the past, I don't know how many years, has found myself on a CSS tricks article trying to get some CSS thing to work. Because my, my CSS skill is at the level of like, just keep changing shit until it finally gets close enough to what I want it to look like. <laughs> you know, not really understanding why. <laughs> I have a, I have a whole rant on on CSS and HTML and design systems, but that's not something I get into now. But it's um, my philosophy on that just never seems to get better. Anyways, popping the stack. Um, yeah, so Salesforce has kind of made national news, um, mainly just because of the uh, they were included in a lawsuit by the. Well, I'll just read the headline: RNC sues January sixth committee over subpoena of data from software vendor Salesforce. Um, let's see where's the point of this article 
I should have clipped this. Uh, according to a copy of the complaint, January 6th, is, uh, the January 6th committee. God, I hate saying that. My fifth term. <laughs> John. They could have come up with a better name for this committee other than January 6th committee. It's just, I can't, I can't get it to roll off my, my tongue. Uh, issued a subpoena to Salesforce on February 23rd, seeking records on performance metrics and analytics related to email campaigns by or on behalf of President Donald Trump, uh, his presidential campaign, and the RNC. Uh, in its subpoena, the January 6th committee said it needed the Salesforce data to investigate whether and how Trump and the RNC used, sales, uh, used the software vendor's platform to disseminate false statements about the 2020 election, citing evidence that many writers are, were motivated by these false claims. Um, so yeah, it's it's not it's nothing like Salesforce was really involved. It's just they were the platform that they was have used, the data. and yeah, they have the data. Yeah. So yeah, you know when you're uh, when you have as much data in your database as Salesforce has, and as many customers, you know you're going to get. Yeah, it's inevitable. You're going to be brought into some lawsuit somewhere where you have to provide data and stuff. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of times, like we uh, when we're we get we get um, we have to answer like how, if we're in, currently if we're involved in any lawsuits or if we've been you know if we've ever been sued in the past five years or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and it's funny because like with a company like Salesforce, it's like, well, not only are we involved, not only have we been sued in the past five years, but we have, you know, like 72 active lawsuits against us right now. And like, you know, <laughs> what, what do you, I mean, just part of, you know, you're yeah. always going to have lawsuits, right? Yeah. I mean, when, once you get to a certain size I and mean, it's just inevitable, right? And also, you know, sales, you know, in all, you know, when you have 40,000 employees or whatever, like you're going to have employees and former employees sue you too. It just, it yeah. comes, it comes from all your stakeholders, John. <laughs> it just comes from money, having money. It does. There's a reason lawyers offer retainers. Yeah. Uh, just because it's, it's just a fact of life. Once you have money, people are going to want it. Yep. Um, I, was, I thought we'd talk about the uh, wellness retreat. Okay. Sounds I fun. I don't know if you saw that. It's not fun. I thought I, I, thought I saw something about it. Remind me. Uh, it's it's the, uh, it's the, what, what is, is it? it? The campus, the, the Salesforce compound. The ranch. The, the ranch. ranch. The ranch, yeah. yeah. So apparently they had a little little thing there. Uh, I, I didn't really care too much about it, but it was just something that was there. It looks it looks great. Reason, is this is the actual? Yeah, photos it had of pictures it? of it. Had photos of it. Apparently it was it was something else before. And they just took it over, and they took it over. Yeah. So a lot of the the aesthetic and everything is was existed, but I mean it it fits. It fits, and it looks nice. I definitely want to. If someone can hook me up with an invite, I'd I'd appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> I'd rather go there than the Ohana floor. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the theater, the outdoor theater, amphitheater area where you can sit and everything, that looks nice. But the indoor yoga looking place, I don't know if I want to hang out in there. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so into the mindfulness stuff, but uh, I don't know. I feel like you probably get some good hikes and it looks like there's, there might be some good fishing there. Yeah, there's, there's a nice buffet <laughs> with a salad bar in there. You love those. Uh, yeah, no, I wouldn't be able to eat. I'd have to, <laughs> I'd have, have to go out into the woods and forage. Fish. Yeah. No, I'd have you, to go forage. Go fishing or go hunting. I'm probably not allowed to. <laughs> Because the environment. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that article had some pictures and stuff of the different, and the rooms and everything, they look, they look pretty nice. I mean, it looks like a very nice resort. I mean, that you would pay tons of money to go spend your vacation on. So yeah, yeah not bad. Salesforce employees get, get a nice little perk out of that. Yeah. Where is it? Uh, let's see. Oh, the naming of stuff too. So one of the, the cathedral and the mother tree some of the areas of it i think it used to be like a church thing or something before this I don't scott's know. valley yeah okay anyways it looks pretty nice I forget exactly where that yeah. is let me look real quick i wouldn't mind going there except for the 
the risk of being uh, brainwashed. Oh, it's just, it's, okay. It's just in the mountain, like Santa Cruz Mountains, basically. Closer to Santa Cruz than to like, um, oh yeah, it's it's in California. It's nearby. It's not like in Hawaii or anything. Yeah, you don't get a yeah. free trip to Hawaii. Right. But <laughs> yeah, where's um? Oh, it's once home to a small Christian college. Okay, uh, the property has been run since 2017 by a nonprofit, uh, which hosts educational retreats. So it was it was ve- very much geared for for a retreat type type things. Yeah. There's it has 140 um, rooms, uh, gathering places, outdoor fire pits, amphitheaters, a pond where visitors are supposed to throw a pebble into as they set their intention for their stay. So there's some some history and tradition involved in this place. Yeah. There's a Hilton Santa Cruz there in Scotts Valley. Interesting little little mountain town. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, one of these days they'll take all the Salesforce Ohana podcasters out there and we'll get to go, John. Uh, that won't happen. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but but we're lucky we're under their radar. Right now. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say. <laughs> I feel like we'd be having a harder time if they were on their oh, radar. I don't know. Um, so another one of my topics, since we're talking about CSS, we can pop a stack on that. What the hell happened? Clicked on an ad. That's what happened. Mm. <laughs> it was accidental. Oh, can uh, I say, by the way, I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this, um, but because uh, I hate giving Google my money or more of my money, but I went YouTube premium or whatever, because mm-hmm. I do I do watch a decent amount of YouTube, like music stuff and just food stuff and whatever. Mm-hmm. And we'll find ourselves like on a Friday night, just even as a family sitting around and watching like stuff on YouTube and just to not have any ads. It's just it's really so worth it. Yes, I'm giving Google another because I've signed up for the. If you do the family version of it, like you, all your family can get on YouTube Premium, which you probably should really should do. I, I feel like I should do because, like, I don't want my kids watching ads on YouTube, especially. Mm. So it's like 17 bucks a month. I know it's another. It's another thing. It's another. Uh, it's just another, another one. Just yeah. add it to the list. Remember when I, remember I met when, with my family and said, "Okay, what services are we going to cut?" Yeah, and we we centered. It turns out that everyone has something on one of the things mm-hmm. that they watch. The only one they were willing to get rid of was Disney Plus. That's the only one they're willing they're willing to get rid of. You know who's just sitting back in their big leather executive chairs, just laughing at us right now? Uh-huh. The cable companies, because they told us this would happen. Yeah, yeah. I said it would happen. I, I know you did. I'm not a fan of this. Yeah, I mean, would you do you would you rather just go back to the cable model, where like just everything you can watch is on you know as you come it's in your cable TV package? At least it'd be one bill. I know. Right now, yeah. even on streaming services, I go to click on something. I, I, I or sporting events. I can see one sporting event on it, and then the other one is like because it's a local team. I can't watch it. <laughs> but if if my local team is playing somewhere else, I can watch it on my stream. Yeah. But if they're playing locally, I have to have a local TV service provider that that has access to that package bundle. Yeah. It's, I, it's just it's crazy. Yeah. It's all crazy. Everybody wants their cut, John. That's the problem. So yeah, you have <laughs> to have a TV provider still. You still have to have that. And now you have like 10 streaming Damn. services and you're, um, you're spending yeah. another 100, 100, 200 a month. And they all keep, the prices keep going up. I mean, I think the price of, because we use YouTube TV for our TV. I think it's probably doubled since we, since we got it. Mm-hmm. Um, almost doubled. But they have added a lot of stuff, but like there, but there's no option to opt out of it. It's not, yeah. it's just, you know, Netflix has doubled since I got Netflix. Oh, Netflix was one that we were willing to get rid of. But for some reason, 
I have this mental block of getting rid of Netflix. Like, I feel like as soon as I get rid of it, they're going to come out with something that I want to watch. I mean, I think they're still like pretty much the leader in terms of just the size of their, not only their, just their back catalog of, of all their licensed stuff, they're but, like but the they're original. food of streaming. So much original. Like, it's, yeah. just, it's just there and you just want it to be there. I they, don't, they do have, a, I mean, there's a lot of stuff on Netflix. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No. I interrupted you again. I'm bad at that. <laughs> Well, that's fine because this topic you probably won't have much to say on, but um, I like to follow design trends and we've talked about skew morphism and new morphism and now the new morphism, <laughs> which is funny. And and actually this morphism skipped a previous morphism, which was glass morphism. And that's kind of more of the Apple kind of layout where you, you like kind of aqua? see see the background of things. No, not aqua, okay. but it's where the, the window itself is a bit translucent and oh, you can kind of what see the background. Like smoky glass or something like or like translucent glass type yeah. of thing? Okay. Yeah. 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 So there was there was a small amount of design trend of glass morph glass morphism, and they all claimed to be. And I I watched videos of the guy that basically not really invented but popularized the the concept. But he he was trying to find a middle ground between skeuomorphism and minimalism in, in design, and came up with what was new morphism. And then he I think he moved it towards glass morphism, uh, and I don't know who came up with clay morphism. But clay morphism is is a thing now, and it's ugly as crap. What I don't? How are these being applied? What do you mean? Like, what do you do with glass morphism or, or clay morphism? What do, I don't understand. It's what is this? You make your websites look like clay, or what are we talking about here? Yeah, that's Pretty a thing. Much. Yeah, and these are these are just design trends, just like yeah. you, you know, a set of clothes, a style. You know, flannel was the was the thing in the nineties, and before that, there was you know. I don't know bell bottoms or whatever. Yeah, I mean the, the the web is is no different. It's it's design. It's trend. We as humans, we like seeing new shiny things. We get bored with the same old, same old. We want you know as a publisher, you want your site to stand out. So you might you might follow the latest trend and and give it a fresh new look so that it looks modern, um, so it doesn't look dated. Uh, but and as with style, the web has the same concepts of just that classic style. Things that just are persist. They're just classic. Um, and so the web, the web is the same way. You'll, you'll have the trendy sites that follow all the latest trends and they have all the new whiz bang UI look and feel and everything. And you have those that are staying true with a classic look. Yeah. Have you heard of, um, millennial minimalism? Mm -mm. Supposedly millennials are, which by the way, are the olds now millennials have kind of become the new olds. <laughs> I don't know what that says about us, but um, yeah, millennials prefer like minimal UIs. They really appreciate minimal UIs. And Gen Z, is it Gen Z? Are they the digital ones? Yeah. Whatever. Um, they like these just, I mean, I don't know of another word than like bedazzled, like literally like little sparklies and all kinds of crazy shit all over there. There was a whole, I read an article about it the other day. I'll try to find it. Mm. But yeah, this, um, and the, it was written by a, a company who has some kind of, you know, app of some sort, and they're really like considering kind of going, um, Gen Z with their app because the, oh. cause they, it's, it was, um, wasn't a dating app, but it was some kind of, some kind of, what was it? So it was some kind of app though, where you, you scroll through things. And you, it's like swipe left or right type of thing, but it's not dating. It's something else. I forget what it is. But when they demo it or show it to Gen Zs, they 
they're just like, oh, this is just like so boring looking. And millennials are like, oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. but, but you have to kind of figure out, like, who's your target market? Well, if you're enterprise, then you, you, you need to stick with the classic trends. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm really interested in UI, especially as it relates to function. Yeah. And and because design plays a huge role in the functionality and affordances and like ease of use and intuitiveness and all that. I start to lose interest on, and not that I don't appreciate because I do appreciate like the artistic aspect mm-hmm. of like UI design. But even, but definitely my tastes are on the simpler side of things. I like simple, clean, consistent. Um, and it, when it starts getting into the kind of stuff you were just talking about, mm-hmm. like, I don't want to see stitched leather. I don't want to see clay. That's just not my thing, you know? Yeah. Subtle, pleasant, pleasing. I'm very zen. I'm very, I'm very Mark Benioff when it comes to this, I think. Very mindful about my... <laughs> <laughs> the simplicity of the feng shui of my UIs. Yeah. Well, there was a design trend where um, transition effects was a thing. And, and to a certain extent, they're still in use today. Um, but they, they tend to have a background subtle effect to where they're not impacting the UI. But there's still cases where someone just went gung-ho on transition yeah. effects. <laughs> they learned how to do transitions. <laughs> yeah, they learned how to do transitions. And what happens is, and even even I kind of fell into that trap. I wanted to start using transitions in, in a lot of different places. But the problem with transitions is that that's time waiting for your UI to that's update. my biggest complaint about transitions. Is, is you're robbing someone's time. Yeah. So instead of just clicking and showing a screen and letting someone start their input, no, now the screen's got to fade in. And then, and then before it fades in, it won't set focus, and it can't do this, and so you're forcing people to 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 wait. Um, yeah, which is problematic for for productivity. Yep. So you really have to kind of balance, and that's where function comes into it, and trying to pay, keep in mind function and and accessibility. Um, one of the things these design trends tend to do is they're not always um, immediately accessible. There's ways to make these function and accessible. In terms of colors and and uh, state, um, but it takes it takes thoughtful input into that. It takes thoughtful preparation to that to make that happen. Um, but when you're dealing with design trends, these are flash in the pan things. These are things that are meant to just kind of be put out there and be flashy. Yeah. So there's not a lot of time or investment put into these to to make sure that they're accessible. Yeah. Things like that. Well, that's the thing. Interesting as a business, like when you're building UIs for something, like it's you know. Is this something that's just going to be around for six months, or do you do you still want it to look relevant and not dated? Let's say eighteen months from now. Yeah, because the trends. I don't know. I think again. I think when it, it can, almost like you know, I've. I don't know, it's like I'm trying to think of who this like men's kind of um, style writer was, but had some interesting thoughts around like st- uh, style versus fashion, mm-hmm. and like you know style. I think I hope I'm using the right terms. You know, they, they're kind of timeless and, or there certainly are timeless styles. Whereas fashion, it's, you know, you get into fashion, um, it, you're going to, you know, it's going to look dated. I mean, you might look cutting edge at the moment, but yeah, it's going to look dated. And the people who, un, who appreciated how cutting edge and fashionable it was will also be the same people that r- see how dated it, it looks yeah. in six months. Yeah. But even even clay morphism as a trend immediately to me looks dated. Clay morphism, yeah. 
It just screams dated. <laughs> it just screams dated. There's just no good way to, there's no way to make it look good. I mean, they, they've tried, there's some applications that with some very minimal, some applications that have very minimal um, UI needs, and thus they can afford to, to, to use more real estate towards this kind of clay morphic look. But it, uh, it's, it's, I don't think it'll go anywhere. So it doesn't look anything like I thought. I, I just looked at this up. I was thinking, you know, like what clay claymation looks like, you know, all the wrinkles from like when your thumbprints and shape man, you know, shaping the clay with your hands mm-hmm. and everything. That's not what this looks, no, this it's, looks it's like. It's more of like a bubbly. It looks like CNC'd clay. Yeah. Like you take a dry block of clay and CNC it. Yeah. Is that, is that the right term? Yeah. Yeah. Um, does look cool, but it also, it just looks, yeah, like that's going to be, that's going to be dated. Yeah. I also worry about like, you know, how cars nowadays have like, a lot of them have like the digital dashboards or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like that's going to look dated because they, they tend to take some more design liberties with those like lines that like that, like kind of framing lines or whatever that, that fade out and different mm-hmm. things. I'm like, that's kind of cool now, but I, I think in like five years, that's going to look pretty dated. I'll be, you better, guys better have a software upgrade for that to get me the new UI when it comes out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Never thought of that. But yeah, I always, always try to bring it back to Salesforce when it comes to design trends and, you know, there's there's really no way for Salesforce to follow any kind of design trend. They pretty much have to define a a what I call a classic style and stick with it, just because they're enterprise. Even if the design system could support uh, rapid theming iterations and changes, um, it's just not practical. I mean, with so many people building custom things who may or may not be using the design system correctly and things like that, it just it would it would just become a few a huge eyesore to continually change the UI, um, not to mention all the training materials and everything that have to get updated. So really, applications like enterprise applications they don't have a lot of leeway in following trends or updating their UI. They pretty much have to stick to a style and, and that's it. Yeah. Well, then you know, companies the size of Salesforce that they have so many different products and interfaces that mm-hmm. you can. It's like it's like a museum of. Yeah. of the museum of UI history just going from one product to another. It's like you yeah. can see everything they've been through. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's probably impractical to like, oh, we're, you know, we're rolling out a new theme and like, okay, well, let's see. That's going to cost us $180 million to, you know, to update all these applications. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can't not do this certification topic here, John, that you put in. Oh, yeah. Where is it? Uh, I'll let you do that. You can do this. I one. lost it. I just found it. It's on the list. Oh, yeah. This was yesterday in Reddit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I brought this up just for you so that okay. you could rant. <laughs> um, I, I read it and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to read this to Jeremy and let him go. <laughs> um, so, so the title of this one, it's, it's a Reddit post. It's stop stacking certifications. If you don't have project experience, uh, it says the amount of people who need, who, who need their head. Okay. The amount of people who need their handheld during projects or are simply or are simply awful admins with 10 plus certs is insane nowadays. If you really want to grow your skill set, seek out volunteer work, more hands-on project work, but stop thinking that certifications are the way to do so. Can certs get your foot in the door or even hired? Sure. But that is but what is what is that worth when you're actually able to deliver on a project or organization when the expectations is based on the certs you you possess? That well, was that was a hard rant to read for some reason. Yeah, you I really struggled with that. I know. <laughs> um, I can like, read, by the way. So the first the comment that floated at the top was great, though. And he quotes: "Can can certs 
get your foot in the door even higher? Sure. But what, what is that worth? And answer this person answers. Well, there you go. Asked and answered. That is why folks stack certs. The employers pushing certs over competence is why there are so many certed up incompetent admins. This, these people really are channeling my most inner Jeremy. Yeah. 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 We, we don't hire based on certs at all. Now we have to maintain certs because it's just part of our business. Mm-hmm. But we hire based on competence. Even if we hire people, we'll hire people with zero certs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Still wondering how I got a job. But. Yeah. Yeah. Some person said, I, I've got six certs. What's a flow? Well, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, honestly, that's kind of winning. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are a fair, you know, I mean, it's almost like, like having a degree. I mean, having a degree is great. It gets you in the door, but experience is what really matters. Um, and if you're, if you're applying for entry level, sure, that'll get you in. But when you're applying for senior, more senior roles and you come in and say, you've got 10 certs, but you can't really actually do anything. That's a problem. John, what was, what did my master black belt? What was my favorite quote of his? Uh, it's the measurement thing, right? Yep. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. Tell me how you'll measure me and I'll tell you how I'll perform. Yeah. You get, you get what you measure. Well, Salesforce did a great job in, in. It's great for Salesforce. Pr- promoting that. It's great yeah. for Salesforce. I mean, there was, there was a need for more experienced talent. They said, okay, well, we'll, we'll create these certifications. And then there was a need for, for for to get these millennials trained on their platform and create more admins and they they did the trailhead thing if recent history has taught us anything john it's that people will go along with and do whatever they're told without thinking for themselves and that's what has happened in this ecosystem yes <laughs> i mean i mean i i don't know how to how to say it because i i i'm I'm self-taught as a programmer. I didn't go to, I don't have a degree in computer science or anything like that. Um, I'm not a great programmer. I'm not a bad programmer. I don't think, um, I do my best to stay up to date and educated and experiment and do things that I think will help me be be a better programmer. Um, and so I think that same opportunity exists for people that just want to point and click in the Salesforce UI. Yeah. And and I, I don't, I don't think that having a lack of certification should disqualify them from, no, from it, roles. it doesn't. Well, this is why I, I mean, I really put the blame squarely on employers. It's an, this is an employer problem. This is not yeah. a Salesforce problem. This is not a job seeker. It's not a trailblazer problem. This is an employer problem. And a recruit, recruit and a recruiter problem. problem. Yeah. Oh, the recruiters love it. Love it. Oh, I, I, uh, what was it? It was, it was only about a week ago. I, I had to check LinkedIn for something. I don't know why I hate going into LinkedIn because it's almost like, refreshing and saying i'm still here like i'll go six months to five months not not logging into linkedin never get anything yeah i have to log in for something to read some article or something that someone posted and all of a sudden i'm getting oh checking on this person congratulate this person this yeah. person had a had a change i'm like oh crap i gotta wait another three months before i'm off yeah. their list yeah um but, but anyways talk so, about a dated ui by the way linkedin yeah. is just terrible isn't it yeah like, it is. is so bad i don't know it is getting pretty bad <laughs> Um, but anyways, inevitably, when I log in, there's like 60, 80, 100 messages waiting for me. And I just happened to look at one of them and it said, congratulations on your recent cert. I got this opportunity. I think you'd be perfect. Yeah. I'm like, recent cert? I haven't had a certification in like years. Yeah. 
I stumbled across your profile. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm really I, impressed with what you've done. I'm like, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> oh yeah. Got a LinkedIn. Can't live with it. Can't live without it. I still, who was I talking to the, Oh, um, someone I know who is in the art direction world. So they build kind of run like advertising does design of like advertising campaigns and, and video shoots and all that, you know, mm. all that kind of stuff. Um, and they went freelance about a year ago. And the way they get most of their gigs is LinkedIn. Interesting. I know. So, I mean, it definitely, it's definitely serving a purpose. It's just uh, the way they make their money is, is the is recruiters pay for access to all your data. Mm. And so recruiters ruin it. Well, I mean, it's, it's a numbers game. It's tough to find talent in, I mean, inevitably, as much as as much as a company tries to do it internally, eventually they will go and outsource it and say, "LinkedIn, I need some, I need some numbers, I need some bodies." We, where's to, Craig? Where's Craig Newmark? We need him to do his thing with LinkedIn that he did to classified ads. Oh, yeah. Well, there's always there's always room for 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 new for new Salesforce to come in in, in an industry, right? Yeah, I, I mean, yes. Everyone is ripe for disruption. Mm -hmm. All right. I know we're getting kind of long. Do you want to talk about uh, CLI, which there's not much to talk about. It's just a rant. Uh, Dev advice uh, or Salesforce investment or basically. Do you remember Dev? Did you mean Dev advise? Dev advise. Yeah. I don't know if they meant advice. I don't know. You tell me. advice. I say pick one of those because, yeah, we are kind of. Let's do dev advice. Okay. I'll let you get into financials later. Don't they have a quarter coming up? Uh, let's see. February, Ooh. March, April. Um, so their Q quarter ends in a end of April. Yeah. Uh, so I'll read this uh, post. Uh, it's hi folks. <laughs> I'll see if I can read this. Cause I don't, I don't know what's wrong. Maybe cause I don't have my glasses right now. That's probably what it is. Yeah, sure. Uh, Blame it on that. Have you ever been into a situation where a complex user story has been assigned to you while it was developed by someone and you don't know where to start and you have to ask the PM to assign this to someone else? In my case, I experienced it today where I was assigned a story which needs which needed needs like redesign. The architect explained me explained me <laughs> sorry, this is the way they wrote it, the approach, and I understand the logic, but I was unable to execute the logic since there was no documentation for the user story uh, in terms of technical uh, whereabouts, and I had to look at a lot of code. I told this to my PM, and the story was assigned to someone. I really felt bad since the, since since it's been like six months in development, and I couldn't take up a story without any documentation. A lady figured out that there was no documentation and informed the PM. I told them that I would need the senior dev support, but was but he was on leave. The code was also too lengthy, and there was like four LWC components, and I got lost in the flow. No, they said I got lost in flow. I think he meant in the flow or maybe inflow uh, LWC and flow. some of those flows I've seen. You could definitely get lost. That's in, true. So. <laughs> uh, is this a wrong approach to let them know you couldn't do it? Um, so I guess the ultimate question is whether or not he made the right decision to basically tell them that I couldn't do this. I mean, I think that, I think that's a great decision. That's that's a courageous decision and it's a decision type of thing that should be rewarded. Yeah. Cause he put his ego aside. Yeah. And he, and, now, I don't know what kind of culture they that 
they have with this person's organization. Um, but I've certainly been seen organizations where the culture was, you don't dare say that you don't dare bring that kind of thing up. Yeah. Get, you know, you get slapped, you get yeah, punished. I think, I think the culture is a big, is a big important factor here because I mean, well, there, there's, there's the, there's the, the culture aspect of it. And then there's the individual aspect of it, how stubborn they are. Cause I'll, I'll admit, admit that I will stubbornly try to figure something out and, and I don't always ask for help probably when I should, but I'm just, I'm very focused on trying to figure something out and, and understanding how it works and why it works. Um, but that takes time and that takes effort. And if it's something that's on someone's dime, then obviously I can't do that. But culturally i think if people are don't feel like they have that leeway to be able to say hey i just i need help on this one or i need need someone else to take this over i think that that's an issue i have been in environments where it felt like i had to know everything and if i didn't then and maybe that was me putting that on myself but i did feel that yeah. in certain organizations i didn't feel like anyone was telling me that hey you've got this person to lean on and you can lean on them i just yeah. just didn't always have that yeah no, I, I mean, I like that. I mean, I, you know, it's more than okay to say that you don't know and you'll have to go look something up or check with someone or consult a colleague or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel bad for this person. It sounded like they felt like they couldn't. And they, they, I mean, they, they felt bad. This person felt bad because they, they, number one, they couldn't do what they were asked to do. And yeah. then it sounds like they were a little bit scared to, you know, kind of raise the flag and bring it up. But also, I mean, it sounds like this organization has a terrible development process. So. Well, I was going to I was going to get into that too. I, I don't know if it's the development process or if it's the platform. I mean, no answer. This person got no answers, by the way. Yeah, I mean, this was recent. This was yesterday. Yeah, when I saw this. Um, well, this this episode has been the episode where we read from the Salesforce Reddit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, because the, any other articles on Salesforce are either news related or their admin stuff, which you know. That's for a different podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're a developing right. podcast. Yep. Um, but I, I think a lot of it is the platform itself is, is as well. I mean, it's it's tough to organize code. It's tough to organize logic. My, my problems with, and I, I think I expressed this last time as well, is my problems with LWC and some of the, the API libraries that you have within LWC moves a lot of logic and everything into the front end, into the client, into your LWC component. and and so now you have this just this spreading of logic just everywhere. That's terrible. And it's tough to kind of follow it and trail it through and understand who owns what. Now, is that a cultural thing? Is that a technological thing? Like, because really, the only logic I want in my UI is, is UI logic. That's what I've always subscribed to. But with the advent of LWC yeah. and the way it's built and the libraries they give you, you tend to lean towards using those libraries because it, it's easy. That's And it's also like the LWC is kind of the unit of deployment now as well so yeah um, and can't you can you have lwcs from like other well, vendors like is there the I marketplace a, yet or whatever there's a i think there's a beta or pilot of being able to component or create bundles of components but it's yeah. not some, something you can do now there there's some kind of issue with the namespacing that I think they're trying to resolve that prevents that i thought like you can't really service. mix so i don't, don't think that's not what locker service was all about no it might be this new light um, component model that they come up with mm. that helps support third parties, which yeah. I'm curious to experiment with, yeah. which I need to do that, but it's a beta right now. 
Um, but anyways, my, my whole problem is, is that the LWC is just, or even just web, comp- the, the paradigm of heavy JavaScript applications that run in the browser and they, they own everything, all your business logic, all your yeah. data access, all your API access, everything is done through that browser and everything's re-rendered all the time. There is a, there is a new thing on the horizon, um, which I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this, but it's using WebSockets. So the idea is that you go back to server client model and your server handles everything like it did before. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get your performance back is you connect to the server with a WebSocket mm-hmm. and that WebSocket then delivers the HTML back to your components and that's what you're re-rendering. Okay. Um, so you you kind of get this hybrid shadow DOM. Not, no, not even shadow DOM. You kind of go back right? to static web pages and... What's every- S- would that be SSR? Server side... Uh, server side rendering, yeah. So you're still having a render. You still have a render. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's not a render. It's it's that's that's where it's weird. It's not like but the, the server is producing the HTML snippets yeah, the, to send back. But, to the but think of it more like instead of your React component generating the, the HTML because you have a class file with your HTML template, and then you've got your your code right, mm-hmm. and that's manipulating your your template, and then that template gets injected into the DOM at some point. Think of that layer, but that layer existing on the server. So it's still doing yeah. all of its logic and everything, and it's still spitting back HTML, and then it does that. Um, what's, the, I, what's the argument for that? Is it performance? Performance and moving stuff back to the server instead of having having such client, heavy clients. So is it le- kind of less buggy, more reliable, more testable kind of thing? I really don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's this new thing that I started getting into and started seeing. The idea seemed kind of crazy to, to hook up to the server with a WebSocket and just Basically, just so it's like it stays open. Yeah, right? no, oh, that's crazy. That's just kind of yeah. you just talking back and forth, and I mean that's kind of kind of cool. I mean, just from an engineering perspective, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of, a, seems it's fun. Kind of interesting yeah. from that perspective. The practicality of it kind of bugs is kind of weird. I don't. It's not going to be really high performance if you've already got a because you've already got a connection yeah, established. You always have point. a connection established. Yeah, and so just whenever something happens that needs to result in a UI change, the server just dumps. The HTML or whatever, it, you know, some kind of event that contains yeah. HTML and the sockets are already open. So you're not negotiating and doing security checks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that I mean, that, and I think that's the evolution of things. I mean, you have we've always said this. We've always said the evolution always comes back in a circle. You have your mainframes and you have your dumb terminals. And then all of a sudden, your dumb terminals. We, we became can't decide full, where we want the full-fledged applications, <laughs> and so everything's in the application now. Then you go back to to server the, the three tiered model: server, business, client, whatever. What was Sun Microsystems tagline that? The network is the computer. Yeah. Uh, and then we went to web and then web had, you know, server and client dumb terminal, basically your web page. And then now we have these, these applications, these angular react lightning included uh, heavy front end applications where everything's running the client and it's trying to stream data back and forth. And now we found another evolution, which is, well, if we stick a web socket in there and keep that communication open, now we can have another dumb terminal again. And everything's on the server side again. And we're getting that performance of client-side, you know, rendering or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the benefit of using client-side hardware. But, um, yeah, now we, now we wouldn't have to do that. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's and, and This is all trade-offs. It's all, engineering is all about trade-offs. You have to, stuff has to go somewhere. And no matter what decision you make, there's going to be positives and negatives. And, Every application is a little bit different. I think, you know, where you, where you have those, where you set those dials for any given kind of application, it's probably going to be a little bit different. Yeah. 
I mean, anyway. it's interesting to explore, but it just further entrenches my idea that I just don't like the web. And we know that, John. We know you don't like the web. Uh, uh, gosh, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago now, I can remember you sitting there in your cube, goddamn web-enabled bullshit. <laughs> web-enabled. You really hated that term. Yeah. That was kind of a bullshit term, honestly, web-enabled. It was just people trying to like capitalize on the web with their shitty like embedding a web browser in like a SQL server tool of some sort or something and calling it web enabled. It's like, this yeah. sucks. <laughs> Y'all are missing the point completely. <laughs> well, a, it does miss the point. It's like, it, yo dog, I heard you like the web. So we embedded a web browser inside our crappy app. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or changed our buttons to, on, in our, in our rich desktop app, changed our buttons to hyperlinks. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> the whole the whole concept active active desktop. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, you remember you remember all the the frameworks that were trying to build a OS inside of your browser, so you'd have different apps inside your. Oh yeah, that, that some of those Wait, do, what? actually do exist. Yes, there were browsers that were trying to be OSs, where you would have Chrome OS. You would have. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> they actually did it. They actually did it, and those are pretty su- successful, man. Uh, we need a clip of uh, from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> no, <laughs> which one? The one at the end where he's screaming because the saw the Statue of Liberty. It's like you did it. You actually did. I forgot what his quote was, but yeah, that's why we need that one. What was I going to say? There was something I was going to finish off with, but I don't remember now. It must have been an unimportant. Unimportant. Was it the Statue of Liberty? Yeah. I'm looking for it. This is terrible. It's got to build up the suspense. I know. It's got to build up the narrative. Oh my god. I'm back. I'm home. Is this it? All the time. Billy did it. Oh yeah, there. Hang on. Yeah! (laughs) We finally really did it. You maniac! (laughs) You blew it up! God damn you! God damn you! All the hell! Oh wow! Yeah, that's my sentiment on the web. <laughs> <laughs> that's me looking at a web web application. Yeah. And you would have thought that mobile would have changed that because mobile did kind of create a renewed interest in native applications because there was that hybrid approach and it still exists and people still do it. They still build these kind of hybrid applications were basically uh browsers running an application with some hooks into the os um but 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 the reason we do that is because the it's money it's cheap it's it's, so you get cross-platform that's one but also just the the tooling and capabilities of the modern web browser and web technologies is in a lot of cases preferable to the to whatever the native platform's garbage is I, I would argue against that, but I mean, why are we building apps that are running in a web browser that are installed to look and act like an app that can't work like an app? That doesn't make and sense. The thing is, they can work like an app. They don't have true OS integration, so especially on the Apple platform. Now, like on well, they, on they Android have, and stuff like that, there's more have, leeway. They do have true OS integrations. I mean, not not at a necessarily a widget level. But like integrating with cameras and address books and all that, they've got nope. they've got all that. Yes, they do. Nope. They they 
they have specialized API hooks to do some of that. But even then, some of them are limited. Like, did you know on a, on a iPad, if you run Chrome, as a developer, you can't run window.print to execute a print command? Because it's just part of the security model of the browser. Window.print? I'm not even aware of window.print. It's how you just, if, so, if you wanted to give someone a way to print, print your web page, you would click on the oh, icon okay. and you would run window.print and it would yeah. print the window. Okay. Well, you can't do that with Chrome. Okay. Safari still lets you do that, but Chrome and anything else based on Chrome um, doesn't let you do that. It's just there's okay. just certain things that are, just aren't available unless you create an app to actually do I'm it. Saying people are creating mobile apps with web technologies that are really well done apps. I'm sure they are. Yeah, I'm sure they are. Congratulations. And I'm just saying, like when when everyone already knows, like. Um, CSS animations and all this other stuff. It's like, why would you, why would you then attempt to try to figure out how to use some other platforms, probably not as well designed and not was well implemented in like animation libraries and stuff like just use the web technologies because they're way better nowadays than, than they, than they were right. They're way more capable. And, I guess and I would argue and, why, why and also, box yourself into this this window that that's sandbox and doesn't have access to full resources. But it but it has access in in lots of cases for lots of apps to all the resources that that app actually needs. Sure. So it just depends. I mean, again, it depends on what kind of app you're building. Like right right tool for the job. I mean, I guess if you need to do you know something with like metal on on the Apple platform, then. It probably needs to be native. I think browsers serve their best purpose as being the modern dumb terminal. And that's what they should have been. And that's what they should, should be is they should just be displaying data. Well, this goes back to where you put your logic, John, and everyone's everyone's apparently putting their logic in the UI nowadays again. So it's just, (laughs) it's, it's, it's insane that we're doing this to ourselves. Yeah. I'm going to, I got a running list of things that are going to be on your, your, uh, what do you call it on your gravestone? The epitaph or whatever. Yeah. Anyways, I'll end it there. We all know it on like web. That's how I make money. Yep. So I have to do it. Yep. All right. Well, y'all, thanks for uh, going on another one of these lovely journeys with us. This is a kind of a winding, meandering episode. But that's fine. That's what they are these days. That's fine. What are they supposed to be educational? No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> they are what they are. Uh, dear listener. If you're not in our Slack, please come join our Slack. It's at www.gooddaysirpodcast.com and just click on community or just get someone else in the, that's already in to add, they can add you. Um, shoot us an email, info at gooddaysirpodcast.com. Share us on the socials. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Five stars, hearts, the likes, the thumbs ups. What else we got, John? I don't like your title. You don't like my title? No. Well, I said that so that I can make this episode so I don't like your title. Okay. <laughs> it has to be something we said, so. Mm. And to that I say, good. You finish it. Good, good day, day, sir. <laughs> you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. I didn't, I like I didn't want to steal your role. No, there. I, I, <laughs> I like that you took it over. That, that was pretty awesome. <laughs>